This episode is sponsored by Corin Publishers. Whether you're looking for a Siddur or Machzer to enhance your davening, a safer to give a new approach to Tanakh, Gemara, Halacha, Machshava, or more, Corin has something for you. This podcast discusses Hamilton's Jewish connection. Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land from the Toby Press, an imprint of Corin Publishers, shows the influence the Tanakh had on the founding fathers through their own words. They have some amazing books and incredible discounts online at www.corenpub.com. That's K-O-R-E-N-P-U-B.com. And you can get 10% off your next order with the code CHATTER. That's 10% off with code CHATTER, C-H-A-T-T-E-R at corenpub.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of this Farm Chatter podcast. Um, on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Andrew Porwanger, uh, who is the Wick Carey Associate Professor at the University of Oklahoma and the Ernest May Fellow at Harvard University. And we'll be, we will be discussing his uh, brand new book called The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton, published by Princeton University Press, which uh, explores whether Alexander Hamilton was, was Jewish and his various connections, I guess, and relationships with Jews and uh, Judaism in America. So thank you, Professor Porwencher, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, I'm a historian by training. Uh, my background is in legal history originally. And after getting a job teaching constitutional studies, I got more interested in Jewish studies. And I now have a secondary appointment in our Judaic studies program at Oklahoma. And this Hamilton book really weds my two main interests of American legal history on the one hand and Jewish history on the other. Okay, so let's jump into Alexander Hamilton. I mean, obviously, with the, with the musical and then Hamilton, did, uh, I know Chernow's big biography, you know, came out and there, there's a lot on Hamilton and maybe people, I'm sure listeners are familiar with one of the founding fathers of America, Federalist Papers, first Treasury, Secretary of the Treasury and all that. But I think just very quickly, and we'll, well, obviously your book goes more in this and we'll, we're going to get more into Hamilton's background, but just very quick overview, if just if you want to give just if for someone not fully familiar with who Alexander, Alexander Hamilton was. Sure. So the conventional narrative on Hamilton is that he is a orphan from the Caribbean. He moves to New York to go to what was called King's College or now known as Columbia. That's his entry into the new world. And he comes to college in New York on the eve of the revolution. He ends up fighting in the war. He becomes George Washington's most important advisor. And from there, Hamilton achieves any number of extraordinary civic feats from serving as one of the youngest delegates at the Constitutional Convention to serving as the far-sighted visionary of America's financial future as George Washington's Treasury Secretary. And ultimately, Hamilton's story is a tragic one as he is killed in a duel by the vice president at the time, Aaron Burr, when Hamilton was no older than 50 years old. Okay, so... Well, we'll get, let's start like this. So Hamilton, you mentioned this from the Caribbean, the the British West Indies, and he was born, I think, on Nevis. Um, we should actually, you should probably tell people where Nevis, Nevis and St. Croix, I guess, what, where these places are, people have no idea. Um, but talk about his, where he was born and his, you know, upbringing as a youth. Sure. Nevis, where Hamilton spent the first 11 years of his life, and St. Croix, where he spent the next seven years, his teenage years, 
are both islands on the eastern edge of the Caribbean. They're both relatively small islands. Nevis was part of the British West Indies and St. Croix was part of the Danish West Indies, although today it's part of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And it's that Caribbean setting that forms the backdrop of Hamilton's childhood. So Hamilton, I guess this is going to go together with you, uh, you know, your hypothesis that he is Jewish. So Hamilton, I guess, talk about let's let's start with his mother. I guess that's probably the right way to start. You know, his parents. Let's talk about her, his mother, uh, Rachel, I guess, and talk about her and her first marriage and then Hamilton. Sure. Well, as I say in the book, if Jewish identity starts with a mother, so must my story. Hamilton's mother is born Rachel Fawcett to an unquestionably Christian family in the British West Indies. And when she's a teenager, she marries a merchant named Johann Levine. And my theory of the case is that the balance of evidence suggests that Johann Levine was Jewish, that Rachel marries Levine uh, and converts in that process, And that Rachel, although she bears Alexander out of wedlock to a Gentile later, still she chooses to raise Alexander in her adopted faith of Judaism. And I'm happy to tease out any more specific parts of that case if you'd like. Yeah, so first of all, to be clear, the the Levines and it's called like Levian, we don't know for sure that he was Jewish, right? Correct. And I'm always very careful to use phrases like the balance of evidence or or probably when we're talking about the 18th century Caribbean, we're talking about a very fragmentary historical record. Documents have been lost to fires. They've been partially eaten by termites. They've been destroyed in hurricanes over the centuries. And we do have scraps of evidence. We have some documents that survive, but owing to the limitations of the record, any conclusions that we proffer based on that record has to come with a fair degree of humility. And we're often in discussing any parts of Hamilton's early life have to speak in probabilities rather than certainties. So going with, you know, your assumption that, that he's Jewish. So first of all, I think two parts. First, why are you assuming that he's Jewish? Is it just the last name or is there something more there? And second of all, I mean, why assume even that he, or that he was, and you'll explain that, you know, who says that she converted? Yeah, all good questions. Johann Levine, as you mentioned, his name is sometimes spelled Lavian, sometimes Lewin, sometimes Levin. His name appears in these records in a variety of spellings, which was typical of Caribbean colonists at the time, and especially typical of Jews to have their names appear in various spellings. Many of these spellings match, some of them letter for letter, how Jews of Levitic descent spelled their surnames in the 18th century. We also know that Johann Levine was working as a merchant, which was a typical Jewish profession at that time. He had been on the British Caribbean island of Nevis, which was home to a sizable Jewish community. I discovered that Levine was disproportionately likely to engage in transactions with Jews at a time when Jewish merchants tended to conduct business among themselves. And perhaps most compellingly, Hamilton's own grandson explicitly identifies Levine as a, quote, rich Danish Jew. Now, some historians have questioned whether Levine is Jewish, and they do so on one basis, which is that he's not identified 
in the Danish records from St. Croix as a Jew. And I went through 3,000 of these records. I learned enough Danish to be able to parse the documents and had to go through this crazy 18th century Danish Gothic script. But it was well worth the effort because what I found was that while true, Johann Levine is not identified as a Jew. In fact, all of the known Jews who were living on St. Croix were not identified as Jews in these records. And much of the other circumstantial evidence that we have most notably Hamilton's grandson's comment that he was Jewish, in fact, points in the other direction. Now, the, uh, the other part was obviously the, the very focal part that we got the very important part is that 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 uh, Rachel actually converted. So what's your proof for that? Sure. And again, this is a probabilistic case, but I do think there are compelling reasons to think that Rachel converts for marriage. Now, they have a child, Rachel and Johan, named Peter Levine, who's born about a year after their wedding. And they do not have this child infant baptized, which was standard practice for island Christians. Now, years later, Peter Levine joins an Anglican church and to do so undergoes an adult baptism. Well, Anglicans baptize infants doctrinally. And so this raises the question, why would Peter Levine have an adult baptism? Hamilton scholars have long known that he had an adult baptism. They've been baffled by it. They've used words such as shocking, mysterious, and inexplicable to describe this adult baptism because they're fixed on the premise that Peter Levine must have been born and raised Christian. But if Johann Levine were indeed Jewish, and Rachel converts to Judaism to marry him, then that would make Peter a Jew. And his need for an adult baptism to join the church, which would have been necessary as part of a conversion to Christianity, this longstanding mystery suddenly is easily explained. And so that's one critical piece of evidence that Rachel Levine converted. But the other critical piece of evidence is it which also speaks to Alexander Hamilton's own probable identity as a Jew is the fact that Rachel chooses to enroll Alexander after he's born out of wedlock on Nevis in a Jewish school where we know that he begins at the very least rudimentary study of the Torah in the original Hebrew because Hamilton, although notoriously tight-lipped about his past, did share with his children this story about going to this Jewish school and reciting the Ten Commandments in the original Hebrew when he was so small that his teacher would put him on a table so that they would be eye level. And the fact that Hamilton goes to this Jewish school at a time when all the evidence indicates that Jewish schools exclusively educated Jewish children is not just the strongest indicator we have that Alexander Hamilton was Jewish, but given the matrilineal nature of Jewish identity, also the strongest indicator that Rachel converted in the process of marrying Johann Levine. Right. So that's the other part that that Rachel runs away to Nevis and and she and she has Alexander. So, uh, you know, something that I think we should mention to listeners and obviously your book goes through all this is that it's not there's no dispute that Hamilton went to a Jewish school for sure. And also that his father, his actual, his father, not Levine, so his father, um, Hamilton, was a Christian, was not Jewish. That's, those two things are factual, right? Correct. So 
historians do not deny the fact that Alexander Hamilton has a Jewish education. And we also know that his father, James Hamilton, was a Scottish colonist who was unquestionably a Gentile. But Hamilton's mother and father never get married. And it's really unclear, based on the historical evidence, what involvement James Hamilton actually had in the life of his children. And it may be the case that Rachel was largely raising Alexander on her own on Nevis. Now, so obviously scholars have known this, that he went to Jewish school. So, I mean, as you discuss in your book, I think it's worth mentioning, they have an interesting explanation for why he ended up in a Jewish school. They do. So if Alexander Hamilton were born Christian, we would expect to find a baptismal record. And there are surviving baptismal records. They're not complete, but the ones we have show no entry for Alexander. And we know he goes to this Jewish school. Hamilton scholars offer this very tidy theory to explain away these facts and comport them with Hamilton's allegedly Christian identity and boyhood. They say, well, he was born out of wedlock. And so he must have been denied an infant baptism on account of his illegitimacy. And if he can't be baptized into the church, then he can't go to the church school. And that's why he goes to the Jewish school. Now, this explanation would be problematic for my book were it not for the fact that if you go down to Nevis, as I did, and you go through the church records, as I have, both on Nevis and indeed throughout the Caribbean, you find examples of children who were born out of wedlock and yet infant baptized. We have precious little grounds for assuming that Hamilton's out-of-wedlock birth would have posed an obstacle to his participation in church life. So that's something I really want to bring up with you, because something that that I mentioned this to you before we started recording, something very interesting that your book does and brings out and emphasizes is that at the end, you know, where does this come from? This take that as an example. And there are other examples. You know, your book has more, you know, proofs. There are more things you discuss that scholars have held and that you say, you know, who says. Um, but something like this, you know, oh, this is illegitimate, this reason that they come up with. And like you're saying, if you look at the records and it's reproduced in the book, a, a picture that shows this, you know, you have a picture of the records. I mean, where does it come from that suddenly everybody's repeating the same story and you're like, well, that's not necessarily true. So where did that, where does such a thing come from? It's a really good question. And I think the answer is two part. One is a particular bias in the writing of biographies in general. And two are particular biases in the writing about Alexander Hamilton in particular. In general, biographers tend to give short shrift to childhood. People who write biographies are themselves adults. And so I think they find it easier to relate to the people they're writing about in those people's adulthoods. And the reality is children tended not to leave behind voluminous records, diaries, letters. Although Theodore Roosevelt, who maybe we'll talk about later, it's my next book is on, he actually does leave behind really copious notes and biographies from his childhood. But Hamilton, like most people, does not. And so biographers are wary of writing about childhood for lack of sources. They're primarily interested in the events of someone's adult life. So they gloss over childhood. And there's often in a typical biography, a summary chapter on childhood that gives 
scant attention and quickly moves on to the meat of the subjects that a biographer is really interested in. And that's as true of Alexander Hamilton as it is of other iconic figures who merit biographies. Hamilton in particular has been understudied with respect to his childhood, partly because Hamilton himself maintained a lifelong silence about his Caribbean origins. Hamilton was taciturn about his background and Hamilton scholars have largely followed his lead. When Hamilton gets to America, he says very little, even to his own family, about his Caribbean youth. Hamilton scholars who are primarily interested in the events of his adulthood, be it the experience he has in the revolution, the constitutional convention, the treasury, simply rush through his childhood. And so they end up citing other scholars instead of checking the original source material. And that's how these myths about Hamilton end up getting recycled from generation to generation. Right. So that, that like I said, that's something that just comes out from your book, not even about Hamilton. It's just something that you see in that sometimes this happens, especially about famous figures or, or whatever. People just repeat things and they just, you know, say things. I mean, it, are there others that have, you know, hypothesized that he was Jewish in the past, or this is something new that you are coming up with? No serious scholar has engaged with the idea that Hamilton might have had a Jewish identity. I think if you go into the depths of the internet, I'm sure you could find some some Reddit thread, to be honest, probably from like a white supremacist, because I've seen these sorts of things saying, well, you know, we hate uh, Wall Street and the Jews pull the strings of global finance. So I bet Hamilton was really a Jew. And I certainly hope that my book uh, is not used as fodder for, for that kind of anti-Semitic conspiratorial thinking. But in terms of academics, I am the first person to really engage in a serious way, to really reckon in a comprehensive way with the theory that Alexander Hamilton may have had a Jewish upbringing. I mean, so I was going to ask this later, but I'll ask it here. So in that in that regard, obviously, Hamilton, you know, today is very popular and just in general, he's one of the founding fathers. So I mean, what is the what has the reception been and what do you still anticipate it being to coming out with the theory? You know, people are probably like, oh, conspiracy theory or whatever. You know, what what do you what is the reception kind of that you've had? Yeah, I mean, my grandma really likes the book. I just got an email from her this morning. So that's that was certainly encouraging. Uh, and I look forward to making it down to Boca Raton sometime soon to sign the copy for her. I think in general, the response has been really supportive. I find on the extremes, some people have a knee-jerk antagonism to the idea that an American founding father could have been Jewish. And on the other extreme, I have people who say to me, Andrew, some ideas are too good to fact check, and this is one of them. And they're, they want to overstate the claim and say that I've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Hamilton is Jewish, which is not what I claim in the book. Most people I find are willing to give me a fair hearing and to take the evidence on its face. And I want to stress for your listeners that every claim that I make is footnoted. And every source that I use to make the case for Hamilton's Jewish identity since the time I started working on this book has been digitized by the archives that I use. And anyone 
can go and fact check me on any particular claim. And in fact, I would welcome that kind of scrutiny. Right. So that, that, that is interesting. And, you know, what I told you before we started recording, I mean, just reading this book is that, you know, like I mentioned this earlier, his father was, was we, we know, was a Christian. But on the other hand, he definitely attended a Jewish school. And there's just so much we don't know that he didn't say. And there's just lack of records and a lot of things. And I mean, you bring down, like you said, everything's footnoted. There's a lot of there's uh, you have pictures, you know, re- reproduced of the various records in the book. Um, I, I don't I don't know if I, did I mentioned it's Princeton University Press. And also I'll include a link to the book in the show's notes. Also, um, I would mention I told this to you before and I want to mention here because you said everything's footnoted for the listener. It, it's a very enjoyable read. I know I'm telling this to you, but it's, it's it reads like a real popular book. It's not like reading like a heavy, dense academic book. And I've read plenty of those. It doesn't it doesn't read like that. Um, it actually it's and and I, I mean, I don't I don't mind saying this. I actually don't know all that much about Hamilton. Actually, I didn't. And it's still you can pick up a lot and you can really read it. And really, it's it's just a very enjoyable book to read. So I do think that's important to mention. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm known as a very difficult grader at my university on student papers because I care so much about writing. And and when I write, I spend uh you know, sort of months in agony laboring over every word because I, I want the book to to read well. And so it's really the highest compliment you you could give me as a as a writer. So I really appreciate that. Now I'm sure there are listeners listening to this and go and thinking, okay, so he was Jewish. All right. Like so what does that even mean? He he never identified as Jewish. He he clearly married a devout Christian. I mean what what like who who like what does that even mean? All the evidence we have in the historical record suggests to us that any Jewish identity Hamilton might have had, he leaves behind in the Caribbean. And in America, he never breathed a word about having had any Jewish heritage in his earliest years in the Caribbean. He is unquestionably identifying as a Christian. But what is so striking about Alexander Hamilton is that In his adulthood, he develops a closer relationship with the American Jewish community than any other founding father. And this is in a historical moment when America is torn between the promise of equality that's enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the reality of enduring religious prejudice. And against that backdrop, Hamilton fights to secure a republic where Jew and Gentile would stand upon inequality. And so understanding Hamilton's Jewish origins in the Caribbean is vital to making sense of his American adulthood. Right. And I think that that's really what we should just mention, discuss that the next part of the book, you know, as, as, as the first part of the book is with sensational, everyone, you know, that's obviously the part I'm sure that people want to discuss with you and interview you and, and talk about was he Jewish? Was he not? But a, a large part of the book is not really dedicated to that. It's dedicated to Hamilton's relationship, like I mentioned in the beginning, with Jews, with Judaism as, you know, as a founding father of America. So let's talk a little bit about the, the other part of the book, um, the other part where you where you discussed this. So um, I guess as, as maybe you want to just talk about it generally and then we can dive into specifics. Great. And I'm really pleased to be able to talk about this, this part of the book. When I give talks at synagogues, 
all the questions I get are about the granular details of my argument that Hamilton was likely Jewish. When I give talks in academic settings, everyone's like, okay, yeah, he was Jewish, but what does this mean for thinking about American politics in early America? Uh, so it's great to be able to be on your podcast and be able to, to talk about both pieces of this story. Hamilton's advocacy for Jews in the early Republic assumes a variety of forms. He, as I mentioned, attended King's College, which ends up getting renamed Columbia after the war. You can't have fought a war against a monarchy and have your alma mater called King's. That would be unseemly. So they rename it Columbia. And Hamilton is a very involved member of Columbia. He sits on the board. He's instrumental in reforms. And many of the reforms that he institutes at Columbia are friendly to Jews. He helps do away with mandatory forms of Christian worship for undergrads. He puts the first Jew on the board of an American college, the leader of the local synagogue, Shirith Israel. He puts on the Columbia board. And Hamilton also is instrumental in dismantling the requirement that the Columbia president be a Christian. And if you look at other colleges with colonial era roots, like Brown or Rutgers, they don't do away with comparable requirements restricting their college presidencies to Christians until the 20th century. Hamilton is 150 years ahead of his time. Another example of Hamilton's unique support for Jewry is his advocacy for Jews in the courts. He becomes the go-to lawyer for leading Jewish merchants, represents a number of Jewish clients. And Hamilton, in his position as treasury secretary, helps invigorate the very sectors of the economy where Jews tend to concentrate at that time in trade and finance. And so Hamilton, in many respects, on with his far-seeing economic vision, is on the same page as these entrepreneurial, multilingual Jewish merchants who, in many respects, share the same interests, the same inclinations, uh, and the same forward-looking vision of the, the American economy as Hamilton. Right. Do you have any specific examples that you discuss about how he does, you know, regarding the treasury or, or, or things like that for Jews? Or Well, what's interesting about, well, sure. So Hamilton, for instance, has one of the more well-known Jews um, named Jonas Phillips, uh, and I'm sorry, named David Franks. Jonas Phillips is yet another Jew who's mentioned in the book, who's important for different reasons. But David Franks is an American Revolutionary War veteran, really a hero of the war. And he ends up working at the Bank of the United States, which Hamilton helped found. So that's one really palpable example. But more broadly, and perhaps more abstractly, Hamilton is instrumental in creating a banking system in creating a national mint, in creating a structure of debt that has the secondary effects of generating opportunities for Jews living in port cities on the American seaboard. Um, so 
you know, something else that that just about something else that you were saying also that struck me as interesting just in the book, it just as a comment that a lot of the Jews that that he was involved with were like religious Jews, whether they were businessmen or the Chazan putting him on, you know, rabbi, so to speak. In that time, that's just something that struck me as interesting. I don't know. I guess that's and he had clients as well like that. He was involved with them. Right. I think he was uh, on one of the. Um, uh, the 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 company, what was it? Moses and Company, right? He was very involved with. Yes. That's right. Isaac Moses is one of the most important Jews in New York commercial circles at that time. He's someone who takes his Jewish faith very seriously. And as legend has it, when the British were invading Manhattan during the American Revolution, Isaac Moses, who was departing the city on a Saturday, refused to ride on a horse and insisted on evacuating by foot to adhere to the requirements of Shabbat that he not ride. And Hamilton is also involved with Gershom Satius, as you mentioned, who's the leader of Shirith Israel. At that time, you don't have the kinds of sectarian divides within Judaism with reform and orthodox and conservative and reconstruction that you have today. And so in general, you do see a lot of religiosity among Jews at that time, but there is a spectrum of behavior. And one of the things the research suggests, which historians like Jonathan Sarna have argued, is that some Jews maintained one level of religiosity at home and perhaps another level of religiosity when they were on the road conducting business in far-flung locations within the American colonies where they might not have had access to kosher food, for instance. Right. Something else that you mentioned that you discuss a lot is uh, Hamilton's you know, advocating having Jewish clients. Um, there's a particular case that you bring up um, in the beginning. I don't know if you want to discuss that or other cases or various clients that he had. Sure. So this trial was one of my favorite parts of the book to research and write about. And it's really a remarkable trial where Hamilton is litigating a case on behalf of a French merchant who's living in New York City. He's accused of fraud erroneously, but a merchant who's from a foreign country, who's accused of fraud, when the opposing party is two of New York's most respected businessmen, this is going to be a difficult case for Hamilton. And it's particularly difficult because Hamilton's principal witnesses are Jews. And this at a time when it was widely and, of course, fallaciously thought that Jews lied under oath in court. And in fact, that the Jewish religion encouraged Jews to lie under oath in court. This was an ugly anti-Semitic stereotype with deep roots in European history that had migrated over to the new world. And indeed, the opposing counsel in their closing argument in court lampoons Hamilton's Jewish witnesses purely on the basis of their faith. He alludes to them as, quote, these Jew witnesses and says flatly, Jews are not to be believed upon oath. Hamilton, in response, delivers the most full-throated critique of anti-Semitism to ever pass the lips of an American founder. In his closing argument, he exalts Jews as the chosen people. He recounts the long history of Jewish suffering, and he challenges the courts to live up to the American creed that justice should be blind to religion. It is a striking moment in Hamilton's career. It is a striking moment in the history of American Judaism. At the end of the trial, Hamilton's opponents and his admirers alike 
noted that he had never been so emotionally invested in one of his legal performances before. It was clear to everyone that the case had touched something deeply personal within him. And I believe that the case struck a nerve going back all the way to his Caribbean youth. Do you do we know? I mean, did you come across in your research? Was Hamilton was that a unique thing for an advocate, even for a lawyer in those days, to defend you know Jewish clients and to defend them in that way? It you can find a number of instances of lawyers, including Hamilton's chief political rival, Aaron Burr, taking on Jews as clients. It's not wholly unique to Hamilton by any stretch for him to have had Jewish clients. But the intensity and the eloquence and the conviction with which he fulminates against anti-Semitism certainly made him unique. And Hamilton's support of Jewry in the courtroom, when seen in tandem with the other avenues I've described where he pursued Jewish causes, does in total make him distinct from other American founders who routinely spoke well of Jews in one breath only to condemn them in the next. Hamilton is striking not just for the positive things he said about Jews, but also for the absence of prejudice against them. Right. I think would I was it I'm getting is being is it Thomas Jefferson that had contempt for Jews? Uh Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, uh at times James Madison. And Benjamin Franklin had contempt for Jews. John Jay, who's another important founder, said that people should never vote for Jewish candidates. So you can go through a a long list of founders and find a number of anti-Semitic comments that you never see in the correspondence of Hamilton. And the one person I would put in the same boat as Hamilton, at least partially, is George Washington. George Washington is remarkably pluralistic, especially for the age. He lays out a vision of American citizenship that is truly blind to religion. And he sets a precedent in the early years of the Republic that Jews would be treated as equals in the eyes of the federal government. What Washington lacks, that Hamilton has, is a network of interpersonal relationships with Jews. And that's what makes Hamilton so unique. Right. I actually mentioned in the book an interesting story about a Colonel Franks, I believe, who, who died even at one point ended up dining with Washington. He was the only Jew, I guess, that Washington would have, um, you know, relationship with. Right. That's right. Washington refers to Colonel Franks, who is a Jewish soldier who fights in the American Revolution as a, quote, acquaintance. And Franks tries to get a job in the Washington administration. Washington doesn't give him a full-time job, but he gives him a part-time job. So we see some relationship. It's not quite a friendship, but they're not quite perfect strangers either. But that's perhaps the closest that Washington gets to a Jewish person. So I guess Washington, like you're saying, would be the other one you would put together with Hamilton, as you mentioned, the the difference, though. Hamilton was, was much more, I guess. Correct. Okay. I mean, that's, that's about, I mean, obviously there's more in the book. I mean, it's, it's, uh, what is that? 200 pages, the book, right. With, with, with the footnotes, like I mentioned, very readable. I'll include the link in the uh, show's notes and it's, uh, you know, just came out. Um, 
Now you mentioned about, about Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, is that, I was going to ask you, what are you working on now? What's the next project? Yeah. So the next book is called Theodore Roosevelt and the Jews. And I'm still working on the subtitle. I was actually just talking with my editor about it. And we're thinking about maybe something like the hidden history of TR's diplomacy. And the book is about a moment in American history when TR ascends to the presidency as thousands of miles away, Jews in Eastern Europe are suffering under the heel of oppression in Russia, in Romania, and elsewhere. And the question of Jewish suffering and the cause of Jewish freedom becomes central to global politics. And the book explores Roosevelt's response on the international stage to the crisis of Eastern European Jewry. And I try to tell a narrative that hopefully like the Hamilton book functions like a story where hopefully you learn something about the historical moment, but I'm also trying to tell a a rich story. And Theodore Roosevelt is one of the the richest and most complex and colorful characters in American history. So it's been a really fun project to work on. And uh, if you like the Hamilton book, keep an eye out probably in 2023 or 2024 for the Roosevelt book. Sounds very interesting. And yeah, I want to just say again that the Hamilton book is, is, is a really interesting read. And you do bring up, if you're, like I mentioned, Colonel Frames, you know, you, you, you suddenly give his whole backstory and you give all the stories. So it's not only just Hamilton and like you, know, you mentioned one sentence about something else. You actually dive into a couple of different stories and other, other people and other instances. And it's just, it's, you know, it's an enjoyable read. And even if somebody, I guess, doesn't come out fully convinced that he was Jewish, but there are, you know, you bring up questions and you, you bring in a lot of facts and it's a really interesting and entertaining read. So I, I just wanted to say that once again. And, um, you know, thank you very much for joining me to discuss the book. Thank you so much. It's really been fun. Thank you.